Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we discuss a different topical safeguarding issue with a range of different guest speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. My name's Georgia, I'm the content manager here at the Safeguarding Company. Really excited today to be joined by Monica Bugle, who is the director of the Schools Consent Project. Welcome. Hi Georgia, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm really, really grateful that you're here. So just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about the Schools Consent Project and what you guys are doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're a charity, which um, if I give you a bit of background as to how we started, was set up back in 2015 by Kate Parker, who's our founder. She's a criminal barrister. Um, and it was really born out of a conversation that she had with a friend who had been sexually assaulted um, at work by a boss. Um, And the conversation was something along the lines of, this thing happened, um, but it's just something that happens to everyone. It's just life. And it was quite dismissive in a way of that experience. That sounds very normalised. It's just a part of life, sexual assault. Absolutely. It's crazy. Unfortunately, it's just become normalised even now. And um, as a result, you know, I think Kate spoke to her about the fact, about, from a legal background, about the fact that this is actually sexual assault, hearing those words as well. Um, and then she went away and thought about it and thought, this can't be, this can't be how we carry on. We should be talking about it with young people, especially. Yeah. Um, so she looked, I think she just woke up and Googled to see what other um, avenues of support were available for people and realised there was no one talking about this in this way with young Mm. people in schools and along came the schools consent project um, we're lawyer-led so all our volunteers who deliver our workshops are legally trained whether they're already practicing as barrister solicitors etc and we come at it from that legal angle but actually we talk about everyday conversations around consent through the through the lens of how we relate to each other in everyday situations it's really crazy you saying that this started back in 2015, which isn't actually that long ago, and to, like you said, to have no um, no one doing that back then, which it's, oh, it's crazy. Yes, I think there was no um, statutory footing either for schools, as in a requirement. That's quite new, isn't it, the and relationship um, education? Yes, yeah. it's, it's pretty new. And for us as an organisation, I think also it's really... Um, taken off in a big way in the last year with the new statutory regs coming in but equally with everyone's invited and yeah. the Ofsted report and yeah. we've seen a phenomenal rise in just demand and conversations about this amongst not just schools but the wider community too. Exactly I think for all of us when everyone's invited got really big it was quite shocking to see the amount of anonymous disclosures happening not just outside of school but within school and I think a lot of it had to do with like victim blaming and rape culture and lad culture and like you said things that have just been become normalized that this is just what people go through and it's a part of growing up. Yes I have to agree and it it was shocking I don't know about you but me I, I read quite a lot of the, um, the yeah. testimonies. I lost a couple of hours on yes. everyone's invited. Yes. And they were harrowing and distressing. And I went through this roller coaster of emotions. Uh, I'm also a parent of two teenagers. Yeah. So for me, it's a professional hat that I might look at it from, but also a really personal one. I think it's personal to everyone because at the end of the day, we all know someone who's been assaulted. 
And especially as women, we've all experienced being catcalled or being groped and having to sort of push away men who are like, oh, you should take it as a compliment because it means that I find you attractive. And that weird like, oh, really? You think that? (laughs) Yes. And sadly, that's continuing today. It's not something that we've got rid of, those attitudes or that sense that... um, that this is normal and it's just something we have to put up with. And that's across you know, men, women and anyone of any gender. Everyone, yeah. So the children that you guys talk to for the School's Consent Project, what age range are they in? So our workshops are for secondary school age children. So they're 11 to 18, broadly speaking. Some of the sixth form colleges we talk to or international colleges might have a slightly older um, age range, but it's 11 through 18. Awesome. And do you think that's the right age to start talking to children about matters like consent? Or do you think it possibly could be starting a little bit younger? I'm a massive advocate for starting as early as humanly possible. Um, And often, I think this is one of the things that people worry about, um, about talking to children too young about these things. And it's not really about the the content. It's about how do we talk about these things at a time which is appropriate for the children at an, in an age-appropriate way. Um, and so, I, and I've actually spoken with teachers from primary schools who've said, will you come in and deliver our workshop, or your workshops to our year sixes, for example. It's just something as an organisation we're physically not capable of doing right now. We're yeah. a tiny little organisation, but it's a plan for our future, for sure. Amazing. Because earlier is so much, so much better. I had Nicole Rodden from Life Lessons here on the podcast for one episode. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of us, when we talk about consent, we immediately think about sexual consent, when really she made the really good point of saying, actually, consent starts from asking permission for anything. And that is a conversation you can have with children of any age. Yes, consent conversations become so highlighted and important in a sexual and intimate context, but they have to start much earlier, predating any sex education children might have. Yeah. And then there needs to be that build-up. It's, it's, it's how we learn everything, isn't it? It's how yeah. we learn to um, do maths. Maths is not my strong point, so I always go to maths. <laughs> um, but, you know, we first learn how to write these numbers, and then we learn how to put them together in some way and add them up. And then we learn, not me, but certainly some students go on to learn you know, calculus. And it's a building block, and it's exactly the same when it comes to sex ed, when it comes to consent, when it comes to anything that's going to be part of our lives forever. (laughs) That's really important. So generally, the workshops, how would you guys go about it? What's the structure that you kind of follow, if it's okay for you to explain that to me? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. So we follow, whilst I've said um, that there's a legal angle to them, But depending on the age group that we're talking to, it's either we talk far more about personal boundaries and we use that kind of language, the younger the age group, and we go into more nuances of the law as they get a little bit older and more interested, depending on how interested they are in it. But the structure of our workshops and the premise of our workshops is essentially that we all know and understand consent. Um, It's something that we use every day in our lives anyway. So we usually start off with... Really simple, um, what, does, what does that word mean? What does it mean to us? And then what does it mean in the law? And then we build on that with, okay, so how do, how do we communicate it? How do we recognize it? How do we know it? How do we express it ourselves? Um, and all of that 
is outside the sexual context. So yeah. all the examples we use are pretty much about um, borrowing someone's water bottle. Or so everyday things everyday as opposed things. to sexualized ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we build up on that and we put it in the context of a scenario and we say, what do you think about this? Our um, main aim is actually to open up conversation. Yeah. So all our workshops are interactive. We'd rather hear what the students that we speak to have to say than be doing all of the talking ourselves. We're there to impart information and knowledge because they definitely need accurate information and knowledge. But everything, you know, all the evidence suggests that students really want to know about this. Oh, definitely. And I, I, I appreciate a lot of students probably don't want to talk to their teachers about it or their parents. <laughs> um, and I tend to find a lot of schools are really happy about that, that fact that um, teachers have a lot of pressure. Yes. There's a lot they have to pack into their day. And now we're kind of pushing onto them a, prob a problem that is a societal problem yeah. that everyone should be dealing with, um, saying you need to now also talk to our growing children about relationships, healthy relationships, life lessons, all of those things. Um, but it's got to be done by everyone. Exactly. And for teachers, it's really helpful to have someone who doesn't know the students yes. come in and talk <laughs> to them. Um, often that, that helps break down that. Uh, sometimes it can be they don't want to feel over-familiar with a student and talk about very personal things. Of course. And other times it's actually, we do talk to our students about these things. They just hear it better when they hear it from you, a lawyer, or you, a stranger to them who doesn't know the context of their everyday school yes, life. not Mrs. Smith, who's been their teacher for three years. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So going back to the law angle, why do you think it's important for people educated in law with law backgrounds to be having these conversations? Partly it is because we then can provide really accurate information. Um, we, we approach everything on in terms which which is something I love about the law in many respects. It gets some things very wrong. But one thing it gets right is that it tries to be entirely neutral in its approach and blind to all of our individual characteristics. So, for example, we talk a lot about rights and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And when we use that kind of language, which is quite legal language in many respects, it takes away um, a personalised element of it or a stigma that might be associated with saying things like you should, a boy should, a girl should. Okay. And so a lot of it is it's so empowering. Um, I find students feel really empowered when they know what the baseline is. They know this is the law. They understand it now. And then they can apply it outside of the, the legal construct as well. But it really is empowering for them to understand. And we should all be able to understand what our, what our rights and what our responsibilities are in a society so that we can live by them. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Do you find, is there ever any um, pushback when you come at it from this law point of view? Because there have been cases with trials of sexual assault where the person gets let off with little or no repercussions. Like the one that comes to mind is probably Brock Turner, mm. who was promising swimming career, so we can't ruin that by sending him to prison, even though he was caught sexually assaulting a woman who was unconscious. So how do you talk about the law in that aspect when there are cases where the law and justice has actually failed the victims? Yes. So we definitely address those issues. We 
we're often asked by students those kinds of very direct questions about something they have read and learned about. And that's a slightly different conversation. That's actually a conversation about our criminal justice system. Definitely. Um, and um, Brock Turner was actually about the US criminal justice system yeah, in many exactly. respects. Um, so we, we, we will address it. But actually, it's, uh, I think your question is about pushback in terms of um, not necessarily the students themselves, yeah. but from elsewhere. To be honest, I haven't had any pushback in the sense of um, the law angle. Mm -hmm. If anything, everyone appreciates that that's the helpful part of it. That's the yeah. bit that everyone is on board with. If I get pushback to the extent that I do, it tends to be about, um, is this appropriate for this age group? Because we do yes. focus on actual criminal offences. Yeah. The second half of our content is about telling them, this is the offence of sexual assault. This yeah. is the definition of it. And we use all the terms that are in the legislation. Um, and sometimes schools, and whether that is because they've got to also explain to parents what their, what their children are learning about, will say, these are 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds. So we don't think that it's appropriate for them to learn the definition of rape, just as an example, which has yeah. happened once or twice. And... In those instances, we can only be led by the school because of they course. know their students and they know the maturity levels. But my take is usually we are really underestimating our children oh, definitely. and what they know already, the information, the misinformation they are getting from everywhere else, yeah. which we're then doing them an absolute disservice by not setting it right or giving them the accurate, reliable information that they should have access to. Of course, because I think now with popular culture, with TV, with social media, the internet, it's so easy mm. for very young children to access these kinds of materials. And like you said, it's better to probably put them straight rather than them have no idea what they're learning about or reading about. Absolutely. Um, and that's a lot of the feedback we also get from students tends to be that it's they, they really appreciate having the information but having that space in which to talk about it and sometimes yeah. say things which is just what they've heard. It's yeah. just what they've always known and never had to question or never outwardly been made to question. And to be able to do that in an environment where there is no judgment, there is no blame, you know, we're, we're complete strangers to these students. Yeah. So we, we go in with a view of this is a safe space. There is no judgment, there is no blame. We want to hear what you have to say don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Yeah. Often we have to actually say that because <laughs> often they'll be saying that all the right answers, so to speak, but not necessarily. What do you actually that. think? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I guess in that space, is that also where you can start to sort of change ideas towards rape culture and victim blaming and the, the boys will be boys excuse? Yes, without a doubt. There is nothing more uh, wonderful than almost seeing uh, and doesn't happen often because we go in for an hour and yeah. then we leave and then we have no context. But in that course of an hour, to see these young people who might have had uh, expressed a view which is troubling, and as we work through, by the end, you see their face say, oh, I get it. Yeah. I understand it. And I can see those little instances of it happening. And my volunteers will say, we had this great conversation in this class often it's also that they're talking to each other their yeah. peers 
we often just stand back. We give them, we lay out the scenario. Someone says something and it's their peers who turn around and say, you can't say that. Oh, because so there's almost like a self-policing within the peer group. Absolutely, absolutely. And they hear it so much better from their peers, even if it's a criticism. Then another yeah. adult, another grown-up, <laughs> telling them what they're doing wrong, telling yeah. them what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And to hear it from their own people, the people who are going through the same issues as them and expressing it in a different way is hugely enlightening. Of course. So we've already touched on it a little bit, but in what other ways are the workshops that the Schools Consent Project offer different from traditional um, sex and relationship education that schools might be offering? So um, they're really different in many respects. I would say that that level of interactivity really sets them apart to a certain extent because um, a lot of schools will probably have a a, a lecture-style delivery in terms of telling students information and then they disappear. Versus a very interactive workshop that you guys have, yeah. Yes. Um, And the second point is the the law-driven aspect of it. So it's a very different angle we come at it from, although ultimately we're still talking about exactly the same things. Um, We go in on the back of the law, but we are just asking them to imagine a young person in a situation, put yourself in their shoes, and is this right, is this wrong? And often the scenarios we talk about, they might not be breaking the law in those scenarios, but getting them to reflect and say, is that good behaviour, is that okay? So the legal element definitely helps um, in terms of the way we teach. Also, traditional education tended, um, until very recently probably, to concentrate a lot on sex ed in a biological sense or in a preventing STIs. These are the parts of your anatomy. Very straightforward things which understandably our young people do need to know, but not go beyond that into the how do we form our relationships? How do we communicate with each other? How do we go from being um, young, vulnerable, in an emotional sense, people into these mature adults who will have safe, healthy, flourishing, happy relationships. And those are conversations which most adults don't have with each other. So it's really awkward having them with young people as well. And they find it really awkward having it with us sometimes. So it is a really different approach in that respect that we try to take. And I think, as you said before, because this is quite new, it's kind of a new space to be discovered still, But I imagine for all of your volunteers, we never had anything like this when we were in school. No, every every volunteer um, says something not dissimilar to that. Our volunteers are they're a very broad um, range. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different stages of their legal careers. A lot of them are are young, and so that's really great because there's that relatability with the young people they're talking to. And they're only a few steps away from, from you know, if they're, if they're delivering to six formers, for example, they're only five years away from that themselves. So yeah. there is that element of knowing what it was like, but also their own experiences. Often they're saying to us, oh, I wish this was available. I want to volunteer because I think this is really important and I wish it was available to me. Definitely. Like, I definitely remember going through sex education when I was younger and it was just, these are the parts of the anatomy this is what it looks like if you get an STI, so don't get one and don't get pregnant. And my sister, who's a few years younger than me, they talked about consent and they talked about sex between people of the same gender as well, which is something that 
also doesn't really get talked about enough. No, and that level of inclusivity is something which we all need to be working on all the time because it doesn't come naturally to an older generation usually. But equally, I think that is also a differentiating factor in some respects of how we talk to our young people. Yeah, We talk to them from the perspective of anyone, a person, a human being. It's like this can be a situation any human being can find themselves in yeah. or this is an issue that's going to arise for all of you we are all maintaining and developing relationships all the time literally from the moment we're born yeah there is a parent-child relationship there is a, a teacher-student relationship there might be a mother and grandparent relationship um then we take those relationships into the bigger, wider world. And now we're having relationships with our colleagues, yes. our bosses, our employees. We might be employing people. We are effectively educating young people to become our future jurors, yeah. our future police officers, our, our future, future teachers, teachers <laughs> yeah. our future politicians. And so it's really important that we focus on the fact that this is this is for everyone. This is a conversation for every single person. There's literally nothing about forming a relationship that doesn't apply to any human being. Yeah. And in the workshops, just talking about that um, being inclusive and for everyone, does that sort of relate into, like we were talking about everyone's invited and the mm. majority of those mm -hmm. anonymous statements were by women. Mm -hmm. So do you find it's a place where sometimes boys and men feel like they don't have a voice to speak about it because it is largely dominated by the female experience? Yes and no. I feel, um, generally speaking, that sometimes it's more about how how the dynamic in that group is. It's so individual and mm. it's so funny because we've delivered workshops in such a range of schools. So We've been to independent schools, we've been to local state comprehensive schools, grammar schools, co-ed schools, single-sex schools, church schools. And actually, I've found that each school environment, each class sometimes is really different from the other. So often it's the dynamic in that in that group as to how, how they relate to it. Um, I tend to find that the... Classes where they're mixed are split into a couple of camps. Some are, some are everyone's, everyone's in, involved. Yeah. The girls are saying things which really we wish they weren't saying and saying, we need to rethink some of these things. <laughs> and um, the boys are saying, oh, and then they're feeling really hard done by because they've asked a question and it's been taken in a way which is somehow sexist and misogynistic. And it prob probably is, but yeah. it's not done out of malice. No, of course not. But... We can't forget that the, the levels of sexual violence in our society, the levels of sexism, um, all those testimonies on everyone's invited affect the vast majority of girls, women and non-binary people. Yes. And actually, the focus we ought to put, and this is almost outside of the school environment, is on the perpetrators yeah. and the fact that the vast majority, it's like 97% or something, of perpetrators of this kind of violence are male or male-identifying. Yeah. And that is something which we have to face and take into account 
but we need to face it in a kind, compassionate way with the people in our rooms. Um, I'm not a believer in the school's consent project. Is not a believer in cancel culture in any way. Mm-hmm. So just because someone voices an, a view which is really contrary, or and this happens, you know, sometimes there will be a student who will say something, and no amount of um, debate in that room or me setting them straight and saying that's not, it's not yeah. okay, will change their minds, and that's fine. But. I'm a firm believer that small steps make really big changes. Of course, yeah. And so for us, it's one student at a time, one classroom at a time. Yeah. Um, and it will filter through. It's a long process and we need to do it faster. Definitely. <laughs> but it will filter through. So in those cases where you're in like a single sex school, where you're talking to a group of young men and young boys, how do those conversations tend to go? They tend to go not that dissimilarly to the ones that I'm having with um, with young women and girls, but with a slightly different angle. Sometimes they feel really comfortable yeah. actually expressing some of these thoughts and views because they know they're not going to get shouted at by someone <laughs> for saying it. Um, sometimes they do approach it with a sense of defensiveness. There's that oh, they've got, they've got someone in to talk to us about consent and it's somehow because, you know, I'm going to grow up to be a rapist. You know, there's a real defensive element to some of it and we have to, we, we try to dissipate that right from the get-go. Yeah. It's like, this is not, it's not about us as individuals actually, but it is about us as individuals and it's not about, it's about having a, an open conversation and then putting things into, into practice because yeah. we can talk till the cows come home. We have been... We've been talking about these issues for a long, long time. We now need to be acting on what we're talking about. It's really interesting that you mentioned this defensive behaviour. Where does that come from? I don't understand. Because like you said, even though the numbers show that statistically men and male-identifying people are the ones who commit most of the violence, Mm. and that's a very broad statement, but the research does back that up, but then why is it that men get so defensive about it? That's a really difficult question. <laughs> I guess as a man, I'm not sure I can even yeah. answer it. And I'm not a defensive man either. Um, I think I think it's, perhaps it's framing. Perhaps it's a little bit of how they are being told about all of these things, it is not their experience. So yes. it's it's that female experience of always, you know, we've talked about it since however old, haven't we, like nonstop. That female experience of our daily lived lives is, if I'm walking home from the train station at nine o'clock at night, there is this vigilance. It's Definitely. just there. I don't notice it. It's ingrained. It's part of just it's life, part isn't of it? Life. Yeah. It's what I do. And that is probably an experience that... Um, most boys and men haven't got to factor in. Yeah. So it comes from not not knowing that experience. Of course. And then the people often who are trying to explain that experience are people who shouldn't have to be. They're victims yes. in some way. But also they are not living the experience that some of these men and boys are living. And so I think that defensiveness sometimes comes from how the message is being delivered and the okay. way it's being delivered. And it's, it's also because, and this is really hard to say, but it's also because a lot of the, um, what we might call small transgressions, the yeah. small comments, the banter, 
the jokes yes. that we have all grown up with and actually come to accept and dismiss as banter are things which no one's ever quite blatantly said, this is not banter. This yeah. is not It's rape okay. culture. Yeah. It's rape culture. And we're starting to use that language and those words now. And that can be really confronting. Yeah. It can be really confronting for, for me as a woman. I'm human. I'm fallible. I am not ashamed to admit that it's shameful some of the things I said when I was growing up to my female friends or my sister. And, and even now, I have to face that. Yeah. But actually... All of us are part of a system yeah. which is set up. It's that patriarchal system which actually fails men, boys, girls, women. Everyone. People of any other gender. Yeah. It's failing us all. And I think how we talk about it with our young men and boys needs to be that. We, we, we need to bring them into that conversation ultimately yeah and I guess what you mentioned before about how sometimes a comment will innocently slip out that they don't realize might be problematic Mm -hmm. and when you're then faced with a bunch of angry young girls and women who are like that's disgusting you can't say that of course you're gonna get a bit defensive of course because it might have just people say things they don't mean all the time and that doesn't mean they're bad people sometimes we just slip up and we make mistakes but sometimes it's also hard to apologize for that it is and it's also um that's about role modeling, right? Yes. It's about who's modeling that behavior to us. And the, the, the people in authority, the, the, for, for children, it's the adults in their lives, whoever they are, are the people that they see every day on TV modeling what it is to be, if we're talking about men and boys, what it is to be a man or a boy. Yeah. And often um, one thing that doesn't get modeled is that vulnerability, that it's okay to make mistakes, that we all make mistakes. Yeah. And how we've, we have to face the consequences of our mistakes, depending on whatever they are, we have to face those consequences. But how we act afterwards, how we face those consequences is really important. And it's okay not to, we don't need to be defensive. We can say, I made a terrible yeah. mistake. Um, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. It was wrong. But if someone is shouting at you about having said it, you're na- everyone's natural instinct is to go, I didn't know. Defend yourself. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that because I think it also comes back to, like we said, ideas around consent and conversations about consent are all quite new. And I think when you talk about role models, we think about how like 10, 20 years ago, no one would think that it's possible for you to sexually assault your partner if you're in a relationship. And I feel like some of that entitlement and some of those ideologies are still existing, which, like you said, from role models could then get passed down to the children. So, yeah, I think it's good that you brought up role models and just how um, because things have changed quite recently, I guess it must be hard for everyone to adapt to those changes. Yes, I think so. But that's no excuse. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we've talked a little bit about pushbacks you guys might have experienced from parents. You've mentioned um, parents being concerned that maybe their 11 and 10-year-olds aren't old enough to know about rape and sexual assault Mm. because, like you said, it's quite heavy topics. Mm. Are there any other kinds of pushbacks that you guys would normally get? Like, um, just for an example, I know 
within sex education, it's also mm-hmm. important to talk about pleasure in sex, mm-hmm. which is something some parents mm-hmm. might consider. Mm-hmm. You're telling children that sex is good, <laughs> which may encourage children to start having sex earlier. Do you have those sorts of worries that come from parents? Um, yes, sometimes <laughs> we do. Yeah, sometimes we do. I, I think um, in in terms of the um, the charity and uh, because we don't have that direct relationship with parents, the pushback doesn't come in that respect. Yeah. But quite frankly, you know, I, I speak to parents outside of that all the time, and sometimes that is a worry. They think that somehow it's a couple of things. Sometimes they think it's um, somehow taking away a child's innocence if we start talking to them about all these awful things. And I think we need to stop talking about it in terms of protecting innocence and we need to talk about it in terms of empowering them, getting them ready for the world that they're going to, educating them so that they're prepared and moving away from that sense. Because knowledge does not take away innocence. No. Right? It empowers us. Um, And the other thing sometimes they think is that it will encourage their children to suddenly become wildly sexual at a very young age. And all the evidence points to the exact opposite. Yeah. The evidence is that the more we talk openly, honestly, sensitively about all of these topics, actually tends to delay a lot of sexual experiences. It tends to delay sexual experiences which might otherwise then not be good sexual experiences. Exactly. It's about teaching our young people in a positive way. So empowering them with that knowledge, it kind of then arms them to go forward into those relationships maybe a bit more cautiously and maybe with also a better understanding of what it should be like. Yes, with some thought and with some thought about what it is that they want. What do they want out of their relationships, out of their sex lives in due course? And being able to voice that to a certain extent, to accept that this is is what I'm ready for. Um, I just think we have... One relationship in our lives, which lasts from birth till death, and that's with ourselves. Yes. Right? That is the one we ought to focus on mostly, and that will inform all the other relationships we form. And so often it's about talking positively about that relationship with ourselves and working out what is and isn't good, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. Yeah. I mean, our workshops don't go into the ins and outs of the pleasures of sex. And we don't teach young people, you know, these are the three positions in which (laughs) sex is best, Um, which occasionally I think some parents have that sense of, you're going in to talk to my children about how to have sex. It's interesting because it's the link between consent and sex, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. People are like, oh, consent project. They're going to turn them all to sex lunatics. (laughs) And that's why I, I often will have to say, and, and you know, this is how we run our material, is we don't really talk about sex for a long part of it until yeah. we've like started talking about all these other things. And then we definitely talk about those issues which young people are facing. They, yeah. They're telling us. They're telling us these are the issues that we're facing. And if we're not talking to them, who is? Yeah. Because I think, like, like you said, the issues are also developing so back when our parents were at school, things like nudes and sending nudes wouldn't have been a thing. Absolutely not at all. And our children and young people are living their lives online a lot more. Yes. That's something we have to accept. Of course, there are boundaries in making sure that's a safe online existence, but it's the reality of their lives. Of course. Most of their relationships, how they're meeting people, is online. Well, yeah, online dating is now 
the main way people meet each other, even adults. Exactly. And we have to meet them in the modern world they live in. Yeah. We can't say when I was 14, this is what I um, was taught, this is what I wish I was taught in some respect. We have to say, you are the 14-year-old in 2022 what are the issues you're facing? What is the world you're growing up in and living in? And yeah. actually, I need to learn, adapt, and help you navigate you through it yeah. as well. And how does the, um, your charity then adapt along with these issues that are constantly evolving? So we, when we started out, we um, had this workshop content. A few years later, we revised it from the feedback we were getting from our classes. And now we're it's really great because we are starting to develop almost a curriculum-based approach. We've been trialing it for the last year and we build on all the basic messages that we talk to them about anyway, but we make it quite specific to um, broadly year groups or age groups because at different points in students' lives, they're going through different things in in one way or another. So for example, the concept of sending nudes... um, Traditionally, a lot of schools that were having us in to talk to their students tended to be the the year 10s, the year 11s at that age. And what we know from the past year from Ofsted and from well before is that issues around sending nudes is happening so much younger, so much earlier. Yes, and things like upskirting. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so schools are saying to us, actually, come in and talk to our year 8s. And so we're trying to work with schools and getting feedback from them and building a, a curriculum, effectively. Something that is a is an ongoing conversation because this conversation isn't a one-off. It's not a, we've had the school's consent project in, tick, we've covered consent. <laughs> exactly. It's, we need to do this on a regular basis. We need to follow up afterwards with our students. Um, a couple of schools will have us in every year for every student. And we just, we Amazing. build on what we've done last time we build on it and sometimes they don't remember anything we taught them last year and you're like wow did we do that right <laughs> but actually then you remember they had one lesson last year and then all their life happened for a year yeah. and then now we reinforce the message and then they remember oh yes I remember you saying something about that but it's also about meeting them where they're at so yeah it's I'm 14 15 I'm about to start going to parties um some 14 15 year olds definitely not in the party scene some yeah. 14 15 year olds really into the party scene there's alcohol involved we need to really talk about how that affects our interactions with each other our judgment how we feel about things how we perceive what other people are telling us yeah so it's really important it's an ongoing conversation and that's what we're hoping to do is just continue we've got to keep up just as much as everyone else does yeah because I guess as well if you talk to a student one year some of the things you're saying about, like you said, like drinking and parties, oh, that doesn't apply to me, then the following year suddenly it could be quite important. So when you go to schools for the workshops, what is your, like, in the perfect world, in the ideal world, what would the structure be? Would you be there once a month, once a year? Like, how often would you recommend a school actually get you guys in to run these workshops? I would probably say that us as an organisation once a year is absolutely fine because we're talking to one individual child once and then again when they're a year older in a different space experience, whatever it happens to be. But what I think schools need to do and something which we're again working on helping them with is that 
once we've been there, and we've there's only so much I can do in an hour, but once we've been in there, that they follow up. Yeah. And that's something we can help them to do as well. We'll happily follow up if they want us to come in and do a, do a follow-up with them. But it's something that in order for us to tackle this problem within that school environment, everyone needs to be on board. The whole school needs to be on board. And they need to follow up and have these conversations with their young people too. They are also seeing their young people every day. Yeah. So for them, it's also when, when, a, when a child is walking through a corridor and makes a comment. I'm not there to yeah. say, do you remember when I told you that? The teachers need to be involved in that too. But these messages need to be an ongoing conversation and not necessarily so directed and heavy yeah. hitting. We come in with a really um, clear purpose, what we're going to give them in terms of information, how we're going to talk about consent. But then there are so many opportunities in everyday life to build on those and reinforce those messages. Yeah. And and that can be done in a school environment, in a home environment. We need to be involving parents in these conversations too. So basically there just needs to be an entire culture around this, around educating children, young people. And I guess like you said, not treating it like a box ticking exercise. Oh, we did it, there you go. But continuing to build and educate as they develop. Yes, absolutely. Because how do we, how do we ultimately eradicate sexual violence, rape culture, by replacing it with a culture that we want, Yeah. by replacing it with consent culture, by giving them, when those messages are completely outweighing these messages, that's how we're going to get rid of these messages. Yeah, and like you said, with um, the conversation not just around assault, but also around um, forming healthy relationships that then will lead into what are abusive relationships, what do healthy relationships actually look like. So the conversation, like you said, can just get really broad. It can. And often we we want to make sure we model positive relationships yeah. so that children know what that is. Otherwise, we're just leaving them vulnerable to the negative ones. Yeah, because I think a lot of children won't have seen a positive relationship. Because if you're raised in a family where there is abuse or there's controlling behavior going on growing up you might think that's how a relationship looks yes and then start to model your own relationships on that so what are some examples that you give like children of what a healthy relationship looks like well often it's born out of a conversation that we're having so when we give examples we actually ask them to give us examples of what oh, okay. they think it looks like so often we're commenting um, part of our workshop we have a we throw up a scenario and we ask them to comment on the legalities and the law involved and then we say okay take off your lawyer hats let's look at this from the perspective of those two people whose behavior um, was that good behavior is this better behavior should we be thinking about these things and often they're giving us examples of what good healthy behavior looks like because because they know it and also it helps them recognize when there is bad behavior because not everyone will recognize it unless they've been told what good behavior looks like in the first place of course because if, if it's normalized yes yeah yes yes absolutely okay the last thing i wanted to ask you about is i believe you guys have I'm not sure how to put this a partnership or a working relationship around a play called 
Prima Vegi? Yes, absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I can indeed. Um, it's a it's a brilliant partnership. Um, it's a production that's currently on at the Harold Pinter Theatre in the West End. And it's a play about a criminal barrister who regularly uh, defends all sorts of cases, but in particular um, cases involving sexual assault and crimes. Um, and then she's assaulted herself and then has to go through the system as a victim. And it gives a very stark look at the criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, and it's been a wonderful collaboration. They've been working with us to help us promote us, but equally all the issues around consent that it raises. And it's really on point for those issues. Um, a lot of our students got the, oh, I say a lot, but a few of our students got to have a um, go along and watch because they Amazing. donated lots of tickets to um, to schools and so some of our students had one of our workshops and then went along and watched and it was it just helps with keeping these conversations alive open there's a real momentum at the moment yes for having these conversations and I think we need to hold on to it and keep driving it forward and not let this become something else that is something that happened and now there's another problem we need to deal with it's interesting because this kind of goes back to our previous conversation about the law and, like you said, the criminal justice system and how so many cases of sexual assault against women never get prosecuted, hardly ever get to report at the police. Mm. And would you argue a lot of that has got to do with the victim blaming and rape culture and just a lot of women being scared to come forward in case they're not believed? Yes, there is a complex range of reasons why that is the case. We've seen an absolute rise in sexual violence. Yeah. And there's actually been a rise in reporting of it to a certain extent, whether that's reporting in a formal sense or in the sense of everyone's invited yeah. and disclosing. And yet we've seen an absolute drop in rates of prosecution. Yes. In rates of conviction, let alone the case getting to court, then having a conviction. And there is that real mismatch between how the criminal justice system is coping with this. That raises lots of other issues about how our laws are made. Yes. What can we do with the system to make it better? And that really brings me back, in a way, to the work we want to do, which is preventative. We don't want Exactly, we want to stop this happening. In the first place. So let's go back to the beginning and try and educate try and change the culture. We yeah. still need to fix the criminal justice system. But yeah. let's try and get to a point where we're changing the culture from right from the beginning in order for that to filter through. Yeah, it's like going back to the beginning and, like you said, solving it here rather than battling with it years down the line where things have occurred. Yes. Definitely. Um, thank you so much for <laughs> joining me today. Um, where can people reach you if they're interested in getting in touch to either book a workshop or to volunteer themselves? Our website's the best place. It's www.schoolsconsentproject.com and you can get in touch with us through that. Perfect. And for all our listeners, we'll also put the website in the show notes so you can get there directly. And thank you so much for joining me again today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding Podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com.